What up? Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I'm Joe Wolfond, and I'm joined in studio, as always, by Joseph Cacharo. What's going on? I'll tell you what's going on. We are in the second round of the NBA playoffs, um, and I think it's been really fascinating. Like This is sort of the round I feel like this whole season has been building to, especially in the Eastern Conference, and we have four pretty compelling matchups going on. Um, so we're gathered here to talk about it, of course. We're pretty light on sleep. It's become an alien concept to us. And uh, I just wanted to check in with you and see how you're feeling about these series. And I figure we can bounce around, talk about all four of them. And I'll give you the floor to, to let me know sort of which series has stuck out most to you as being the most interesting so far. And uh, we can take it from there and talk about the rest of them. So, so what, what do you want to talk about? Let's start with the series that I actually wrote about this morning, and that's Warriors-Rocket. It's okay. the only series out of the second round that's not 1-1. Um, the only one that hasn't been... Well, actually, I, I was going to say it's the only one that hasn't been competitive, but it's still been competitive. Both games have been like two possession games. The interesting thing here is that even though all the Warriors have done is hold serve at home, you know, it's not like they stole one in Houston, it feels like a lot more than that. And the reason being... A, the Rockets failed to capitalize on the rest advantage. The Warriors came into this series with less than 40 hours between the end of the first round and the beginning of this round against a rested Rockets team that was already waiting for them in the Bay Area because they assumed they were going to beat the Clippers. Less than 40 hours between series, let alone games, in the playoffs is as close to a back-to-back as it gets. They did that with Steph Curry and Klay Thompson hobbled by ankle injuries that they suffered in the final game of the last series, and... Their status being in doubt until the day of game one. Not only did the Rockets fail to capitalize and win that game, they were down nine after the first quarter. Like, they looked like the, like, tired, weary team. Maybe they were rusty because they had been off almost a week. I don't know. So they go down nine early in that game. They spend all of game one trying to fight their way back into it, which they kind of do, but they end up losing a close game. Game two comes, and it's like, all right, I mean, the Rockets got to get off to a better start, and you know, here's what they, and same thing, they're down nine at the end of the first quarter and have to spend their entire game two clawing their way back and again, fall short. And there's a few things that stick out to me. One, Clint Capella has been awful. Uh, With DeMarcus Cousins out, this is the one advantage that the Rockets are supposed to have over the Warriors, size. Beast them inside, win the battle on the boards. Not only are they not winning the battle on the boards, they're getting dismantled by a smaller Warriors team. The Warriors finished 23rd in offensive rebound rate this season. They're not a big team. They don't crash the glass. They're rebounding more than 34% of their offensive opportunities. That's absurd. Average is about 25%. We're talking about the Warriors. Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, Klay Thompson, Draymond Green, not a scorer, but a smart offensive player. You're at a disadvantage soon as you take the floor against them, okay, on the defensive end. If you're giving them two-shot possessions every time, don't even bother coming out. Just start booking your because you're not beating them. Like. It's just been stunning to me how the only advantages it seemed Houston had and the only way they could hang in this series has just gone down the drain. Okay, well, I'll push back on that a little bit. I don't think that's the only advantage that they have. And I don't think, you know, you mentioned beasting the Warriors inside. That's not really what the Rockets do. Like, they do thrive a lot on those lobs to Capella, which they haven't been getting. And I think that's a credit to the Warriors for the way that they've defended those actions. That's also a bit on Harden more than Capella, too, because he's thrown some bad passes in there. He has, but I think the Warriors have come in with a very clear game yeah, plan yeah. to send that defender from the weak side to blow up that action in the middle of the floor every single time, and it's been incredibly successful. Clay had that great steal. Clay had that great steal. Durant had a couple of blocks on those lobs. Um, they're just consistently sending that extra defender over to muck that stuff up. And so, I mean, one thing for the Rockets, like 
Obviously, you mentioned the offensive rebounding. A big reason that the, the Rockets had the Warriors on the ropes last year was because that went the other way. They were winning the possession battle. They were destroying the Warriors on the offensive glass. They were winning the turnover battle, which they did in game one, but didn't in game two. That's really important for them. So that's one thing. Another thing is they need to just get into their set a lot faster than they've been doing. The Warriors have done a fantastic job on Harden. You know, that's a credit to Iguodala, who's done a great job on ball. It's a credit to Steph Curry because the Rockets have tried time and time again to get Curry switched onto Harden. And and Steph has done a really good job of hedging and recovering. Like he'll come up, he'll string Harden out, he'll bump him back a few feet, and he'll buy the Warriors a bit of time. And Harden's just going a little bit too slowly. He's not forcing the issue there. And what ends up happening is they'll eat like 20 seconds of shot clock. And then at the end of the clock, the Warriors will come and they'll send that blitz, trusting that Harden doesn't really have enough time to make them pay for it. Whether that means like starting a swing sequence on the perimeter that's going to lead to an open three, or, you know, whether it's them just conceding the switch, step onto Harden with five seconds left. And it's like, okay, you want to get to your step back? Then be my guest. But that's really the only option that's going to be available to you. I think they need to press that a little bit more and start getting into their stuff faster because in game one in particular they were ending up in short clock situations almost every time down the floor and they had a bunch of 24 second violations and a bunch more just desperation heaves at the end of the clock and I think they're just making things easy on the Warriors because again you know Steph's done a pretty good job in single coverage on Harden but if they force that switch earlier in the clock it's going to be a different story I think so that that's a big thing to me is like I just think the Rockets need to go a little bit quicker and they also just need to shoot the ball better like Harden still has done a good job of creating those open threes for his teammates and they haven't really knocked them down PJ Tucker is always going to be a bellwether for them I think because you know if you talk about them bringing that extra defender over from the weak side PJ is often the guy who's being left open in the corner he needs to be able to hit those threes uh I mean apart from Aaron Gordon outside of of Paul and Harden nobody else on the Rockets has really showed up I actually thought Austin Rivers had a good game too they just need more from their supporting cast the other thing too is you know the size advantage all that be damned what Steve Kerr's essentially done is he's leveraging the Warriors talent advantage because he's rolling out the Hamptons five their death lineup more than ever like that five-man lineup has played half of the minutes in this series together that's a lot 48 minutes he started them in game one I mean it was like from the start no messing around 48 out of 96 minutes is a lot for one five-man combination to play and in those 48 minutes the Warriors actually aren't defending well the Rockets are scoring at will the problem is what the Warriors are doing offensively with the Hamptons five lineup is absurd they have a true shooting percentage above 70 with those five guys on the court together their offensive rating is 129 Point seven, and honestly, that lineup is almost kind of playing Capella off the floor for whatever reason. Like I, I don't know, maybe this is one of those cases where when the series ends, we find out like something was bothering Capella. But we the, did have that virus at the end of the first. Yeah, round. he did. The one thing with him, even if you go back to last year when the Warriors went to the Hamptons five lineup, the, the beauty with Capella is that even though he is this like big guy who can kind of patrol the paint, he's also like pretty good at handling switches on the perimeter and moving his feet. Like. It, this year, I don't know why, but it doesn't seem like he's, that mobility is there. And you I mean, you look at the numbers. Obviously, it's a very, very small sample size. It's only two games. But Capella's on-off net rating in these two games, minus 53.4. Like, so bad that you almost wonder if the numbers are wrong. Yeah. Um, another thing, you know, with the Warriors, uh, usually a good barometer of how well their offense is clicking is how many of those lob dunks they're getting off of the four-on-three with Draymond throwing the lob. Usually it's to Iguodala. Uh, coming over from the corner and they've been feasting with that action and the Rockets time and again are having the defender step up on Draymond when he catches the ball in the short roll and that's opening up the lob every time they gotta force him to try and be a scorer at some point in time because he loves it 
when you open up that pass. He wants to make that pass. I think they've got to make that a little bit more difficult. you got to just give credit where it's due. The Warriors have been excellent. They've defended really, really well. And Durant has just been insane. And I think the Rockets, as you probably would have expected, are really feeling the loss of Trevor Ariza. They have P.J. Tucker, who you know has done a good a job as possibly can guarding Durant, but he doesn't have the height, uh, even though he can kind of make things physical and get into his body a little bit. Outside of him, I mean, Daniel House has been a, an important piece for the Rockets this season, but you can tell he just doesn't give them what Ariza gave them in terms of that defensive versatility. Yeah, and I mean, you mentioned the Warriors' defense. The numbers don't necessarily bear it out yet. Like I said, the the Hamptons 5 lineup is actually bleeding points. But the eye test actually does tell a different story in this series because, like, Steph hasn't shot the ball well yet, but Steph's playing his ass off on defense. There's, like, some possessions where Steph's doing a good job making everything difficult He's, for Harden. This is the best I've seen him defend right. all season. It's, Clay it's has been phenomenal on both ends, really guarding Chris Paul really well. Draymond, this is the best I've seen Draymond play defense at all this year, like since last year for yeah, sure. Just the best that he's been moving too. Right. Like he looks so much he's lighter on He's covering so much ground. Iguodala's doing great work on Harden. Also, Iguodala is 12 of 16 shooting. Obviously, that's not what you know he's on the floor for, but yeah. they'll take it. Leads the league in dunks this postseason, yeah. many, as many have pointed out. So just like every spot in that death lineup is defending. They're defending individually, but they're also defending incredible as a team. Draymond's kind of anchoring everything again. And then, yeah, KD is just KD, man, just bringing them home. The guy's averaging 34 points a game in the playoffs on way better than, I think, 50, 40, 90. Even though it's inevitable, it's still been fun. Like, it, it doesn't at all feel like, oh, same old Warriors, this isn't fun. It's, like, boring. It's like, eh, I don't know. This excellence is kind of fun to watch. It is. I mean, stylistically, this series is a bit of a drag, uh, sort of like it was last year when the execution at both ends was really high but the basketball itself it just devolves into isolation so often it's a ton of pick and roll and a little bit less motion than I think we're used to seeing from the Warriors and other series I mean the Rockets never have a ton of motion in their offense but um, these teams obviously just know each other's tendencies so well that it almost turns the game on its head a little bit when it becomes less fun to watch but I do I do want to piggyback on that point just about Iguodala and what he has done and starting him and playing that Hamptons 5 lineup like I, I feel like we do this every year where he goes at like 50% during the regular season and he gets older every year it's like he's 33 he's 34 okay maybe this is the year where he's actually cooked and every year he just brings it in the playoffs and he's been so good uh and a lot of their blitzes on Harden have worked because Iguodala has done such a good job of taking the pocket pass away from him and, you know, when he's able to make that pocket pass, the Rockets' offense can be super dangerous. But when he's just getting trapped and they have to reset, we end up in those short clock situations when they have to try and generate something in isolation out of desperation at the end of the clock. And another thing is, I mean, Capella is not much of a playmaker. So I think they'll live with him catching the ball on the short roll and not really expecting him to be able to make that pass to the corner, find the open shooter. That's why I think... The Rockets, when they get him the ball in the pick and roll, they want him to dunk it. It's got to be a lob, right? He's not the guy who's going to initiate the right. next action. So that's why I feel like they are so comfortable just crashing into the paint to try and blow off that lob because they're like, you know, we can do this and leave a shooter open on the weak side and trust that Capella's not going to be able to make the pass that's going to burn us for it. Capella averaged about, I think, 11 field goal attempts a game during the regular season. It was like 10.8. He's taken nine shots total in the first two games. Like, those lobs haven't been there. You know, as you mentioned, credit to the Warriors for taking that away. Mm -hmm. He hasn't really been forceful inside, and uh, it's a combination of a lot of things. But it's if the Rockets are going to get back in this series... I mean, they need some, like, even if it's 85% of what Capella is at full value, but they need that guy because 
they can't they can't survive in this series if they're not taking advantage of that size mismatch. Yeah. It's not looking good for my Rockets in seven. No, it is not. Okay, so have you moved off that? I think I have to at this point. Um, Game one felt to me like the one they needed to have. Coming in with that rest advantage with Curry and Thompson hobbled, I just felt like that was a game that they were going to take. And so even before game two, after they lost that game one, I was feeling pretty shaky about that prediction. Would I be shocked if they held serve at home? No. I, I could see this going back to Golden State 2-2. I wouldn't bet on it at this point in time. This feels to me like a, a series where the Rockets take Game 3 and then the Warriors put their foot down in game th- in Games 4 and 5. Yep. Um, but, I mean, we'll see. I do still believe in the Rockets. I think they're a fantastic team. Just the, the way the Warriors have been playing at the defensive end has changed my perception of what that team is because that was my big concern about them and that was the reason I picked against them in this series. Their defense looks so bad against the Clippers. We were waiting for them to flip that switch. It felt like maybe that switch just wasn't working anymore. I mean, here we are, right? Yeah. Yeah. Also, Um, we were talking about Iguodala and how, like, we kind of undervalue him every year going into the playoffs. One thing that a lot of people forget to mention, and myself included, when we talk about, you know, what could have been had Chris Paul not been injured, Iguodala missed the final three games of that series. It was 2-2 when Iguodala went down, and the, the Rockets won game five without Iguodala in the lineup. Now, I'm not saying he's as important to the Warriors as Chris Paul is to the Rockets, yeah. but it is kind of an important note that we leave out a lot. He doesn't leave it out. He, right. he has he, frequently yeah. said yes. that the Warriors would have won that series in five yeah. if he had been healthy. So, um, All right, where do you want to go from here? Let's go wrap Sixers because they play tonight. So Yeah, so this is, yeah again, uh, all the series are two games deep. This is the only game that's going tonight, so we will have a game three by tomorrow morning. What have you seen through two games? I mean, obviously the Sixers made a lot of adjustments between game one and two, changed the outlook of that matchup a little bit. Do you see some counters for the Raptors? Do you see some things that they should be doing differently? I certainly do, but uh, let's hear your thoughts first. Yeah, so I mean, first and foremost, the Sixers countered game one, uh, sorry, countered in game two from what they saw in game one by having Jarrell Embiid guard Pascal Siakam. And it really just kind of threw Siakam and the Raptors offense out of whack. For one, um, you know, when... Pascal had Tobias Harris on him. Even though Harris was playing in the same way, it's the same way in terms of daring him to shoot and backing off. It's a lot different when you can attack Tobias Harris off the dribble as opposed to when it's Joel Embiid, an elite rim protector. Because now you're thinking, okay, I don't know if I'm going to attack him off the dribble. I'm not 100% confident in my pull-up jumper game yet, or especially above the break. Pascal's a good corner three-point shooter. He's still not a great above-the-break three-point shooter. So just that little bit of indecision and the seconds that it wasted for the Raptors offense, there was a lot of late clock situations, a lot of like keep moving the ball around to hunt a mismatch that might not be there. Then they'd find the mismatch and still not attack it properly. The one mismatch that the the new Sixers defensive matchups created is Marcus Gasol's on Tobias Harris. Now, he picked them apart a little bit for like a five-minute stretch in the third quarter of game two, but with his passing. They'd get the ball down there, they'd double because Tobias Harris can't guard him in the post, and Gasol would find a shooter who would usually brick the shot. But the Raptors need Marcus Gasol to at least look at the rim, at least try scoring like one out of every three times. They need that scoring. I think we'll see some of that in game three. In terms of Siakam, they should probably attack from the corners. Again, he's a 42% corner three-point shooter. If they start the play out there with him, Embiid has to respect that. If he doesn't, Siakam can beat them from out there. So those are two things, I think. Marcus Gasol has to look to score with Harris on him, and if they're going to run stuff through Siakam with Embiid guarding him, it's going to start from the corners. Yeah, I mean, the one of the first possessions of that game, too, was Siakam catching the ball in the corner, and Embiid did close out on him, and Siakam was able to beat him off the dribble. One of the few times that actually happened in this game, 
The rest of the time, like you say, not only is Siakam not a great above-the-break shooter, but he's just not a good pull-up shooter. So if he's catching the ball above the break and be sitting back and it's like, you want to take that pull-up jump, shoot, jump shot? Be my guest. Yeah. You want to run in and take that runner? Go ahead. And, and actually, Siakam's been really good with that push shot throughout the postseason. I feel like that's a skill he developed mid-season this year, but he missed like three or four of them in this game and then basically just stopped going to that shot altogether. But I think the Gasol point is a really good one in that the reason that game plan worked for the Sixers was because he wasn't aggressive enough looking for his own offense. And I understand that's just not really his game, especially on a team like this. I mean, when he was playing in Memphis and Mike Conley was basically the only above-average scorer playing alongside him, I think he felt like he needed to hunt his own offense a little bit more, whereas on this Raptors team, when there's so much complimentary offensive talent, he has really delighted in just being that fulcrum who makes plays for others. And it's not just him being in the post against Harris, which I do think is important, right? And and he has to make the Sixers send those double teams. He has to make them feel that sense of urgency when he catches the ball down there. It's also when he's catching the ball above the break because the Sixers were sending extra bodies at Kawhi and then zoning up the rest of the Raptors shooters. And when the ball would come out to Gasol, it's like you said, he wasn't looking at the rim and they knew that they had license to ignore him out there. And I know he only shot one of four from three in that game. Maybe that dissuaded him a little bit. I don't think that should matter. Like he has been a close to 40% three-point shooter this season he's just got to look to pull the trigger on those threes because oftentimes those are the best looks the Raptors are going to get. And if a couple of those go down, the Sixers have to start thinking a little bit about how they're defending him. Another thing we haven't talked about yet too is Kawhi Leonard's obviously having an insane series, averaging 40 points on like 60-something percent shooting. But the Sixers did a lot better job on him in game two. For one, Ben Simmons guarded him really well. But the other thing they did is they doubled... They didn't fully double, but they sent extra bodies like at least halfway into the lane. There was the paint was a lot more clogged in game two than it was in game one. And one way to unclog it is by pulling the trigger, as you mentioned, on those threes that they're getting because the Raptors weren't doing it in game two. They would have a clean look at a three off a kickout and not take it. And then like 12 seconds goes by and they're settling for a worse shot. So they A, have to take those shots and B, I mean, they got to knock them down at a better clip than they did in game two. Yeah, I also think using Siakam as a screener would be a good way to hurt the Sixers for sticking and beat on him because you can still make him defend in space with guys who are more qualified to hit those pull-up jumpers than Siakam is. You know, obviously Kawhi has done a number on the Sixers in the mid-range in this series. So much of his offense has come from that spot when they drop back on him. And he's one of the best pull-up mid-range shooters in the league. So make him beat uncomfortable in that matchup. You know, don't just let him sit there near the rim and leave it up to Siakam to create offense. Like, there are other ways to go about this, whether it's dribble handoffs or, you know, him running the pick and roll, which he's more than capable of doing. I, I think they have ways to make that a little bit more difficult. Another thing which we haven't talked about yet, which is, seems like a super obvious fix to me, is hard matching Gasol and Embiid's minutes, which I, I understand, you know, Nick Nurse, he wanted to ride with Ibaka because he's had a nice season, and I understand, like, this is a people managing business and sometimes it can be difficult to tell a guy who's been an important part of your team's culture that he's got to scale back to like 13 or 14 minutes a game but you look at the numbers in this series 62 minutes Embiid has been on the floor only 36 of them has he been matched up with Gasol and 26 he hasn't and that just seems like totally out of whack that ratio in the 36 minutes when he's been matched up with Gasol the Sixers' net rating is negative 28.4, and their rebound rate is 44%. In the, in the 26 minutes without Gasol, they're a plus 49.7 with a 61% rebound rate. 
that, that just tells the whole story right there. Right? You, on, on the one hand, Ibaka does like have a certain skill set that can maybe make Embiid uncomfortable. He does have the capability of popping, and I, I don't think he's done a terrible job on him defensively, but they're getting killed on the glass. The Raptors are having to send more help, and that's opening things up for the rest of the Sixers' offense. And I just think, what is really the downside of, of matching up those minutes? Well, and again, you mentioned the like ego management, but the way I see it is maybe he's upset at first uh, when you pull him early, but at the end of the day, is Serge Ibaka going to be more upset by only playing 18 minutes, but playing 18 minutes in a position to succeed, mm-hmm. or playing an extra five minutes and getting his lunch stolen by Joel Embiid. You know what I mean? Like, I think he'll be happier if he's in a position to succeed, which A, get him away from Embiid, and B, you mentioned the pick and pop, like his ability to pop. The Raptors bench is struggling beyond imagination right yeah. now. Fred Van Vliet and Serge Ibaka, or maybe get Lowry in with the bench more often because he had a great chemistry with Ibaka this year, run some pick and pop. Whether it's Embiid in there, Boban Marjanovic, they had Greg Monroe out there and Amir Johnson at the like all of these guys are are vulnerable and you know they can be exploited if the Raptors run some pick and pop stuff for Ibaka, which was bread and butter during the regular season. They've just gone away from it. Yeah, and the, those transitional lineups that they throw out there with three bench guys and sometimes even four bench guys just really suffer from a lack of playmaking. Yeah. And a lot of that falls on Van Vliet, who just hasn't been able to create anything against the Sixers' size. But I think you're right. I mean, throwing Lowry out there with Ibaka a little bit more. And, and part of this is just substitution patterns, right? I, I, like I said, I can understand Nick Nurse being like, this is what we have done all year. He wants to stick to his sub-patterns. And if you switch something up to adjust to what your opponent is doing, it might feel like a concession. Like you are letting them win and you have to adjust rather than force them to make adjustments. I I don't think that that should factor into his thinking too much because I think you have something that is clearly working. It's an advantage you can press where you're able to neutralize the Sixers' best player, at least at the offensive end. I think you should press that advantage as much as you possibly can. And so the Sixers, what they're doing is they're really, like they're going to their transitional lineups really early on, and I think the Raptors should start doing the same thing. So they're matching them starters for starters more often. Yeah, Brett Brown's substitution patterns are very unique. I mean, um, from his starters, he usually takes one of Embiid or Simmons out like five or six minutes into the half, a lot e- earlier than most coaches do. The flip side of that is then he starts the second and fourth quarters with his starting lineup, which no team is, pre- not that they're not prepared for it, like they know it's coming, but no team's prepared to deal with that, even though they face it mm-hmm. multiple times a year. Yeah, and... I mean, for Embiid, he's had a tough series. I would like to give him credit just for the way that he finished that game too because Gasol was out there playing against him and two absolutely monstrous plays from Embiid who was playing through the ships. His own definition. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, One of them was he gets hard doubled by Gasol and Siakam, which is a pretty tough double to break. And he makes a just a dazzling over-the-head pass to Jimmy Butler for a three-pointer to stretch the lead from, I think, four to seven late in that game. Then after the Raptors had closed the gap to one with like 30 seconds to play and about four seconds on the shot clock, Embiid catches the ball at the top of the key. Gasol's playing off of him a little bit. And instead of take the shot, uh, Embiid drives the ball into the post, does a spin move, goes up and under and gets what basically proved to be the winning basket in that game. Um, so he's still capable of doing all that. He's still going to be a force to be reckoned with in this series, whether Gasol is out there or not. I think, you know, between dealing with the knee and dealing with the gastrointestinal thing in game two, he hasn't been at his best, but I'd expect him to be a lot better in Philadelphia. Yeah, I've been saying that all series. Like, I think, 
I think Gasol's going to continue to do a good job on him, or as good a job as anyone else could do. But at some point, we're going to get a Joel Embiid game. Do not see this series going down without at least one game where Joel Embiid just beasts. Yeah, and game two was the Jimmy Butler game, yeah. which, um, you know, pursuant to that, Kawhi didn't spend a lot of time guarding Jimmy, even in the fourth quarter where Butler was kind of going off. And I'm curious about that. I, I wonder if maybe part of it is that they just want to preserve his legs a little bit for the load that he's had to carry offensively. <clears throat> or is it that they want to have him just be there as a helper? But they, for the most part, have had him like guarding Tobias Harris in the corner, which is not a guy that you can really help off of that liberally. I don't know if we see that happen again. I mean, I think Danny Green did a passable job on Butler, and Butler just hit some tough shots. But if you want to take Butler out of the game in the fourth quarter, and he's been their closer since he got there pretty much, I'm curious whether they'll start to stick Kawhi on him a little bit more often. Yeah, I would have liked to see Kawhi on him on some of those final couple possessions. But one, I, I do think Green did a good job on him. And the thing people are forgetting, like Jimmy Butler shot 9 of 22. In that. Like he did not have a good shooting night. He was able to offset that by the fact he took 10 threes. Yep. And got to the free throw line, I think, eight or ten times, including a five-point play where Green fouled him on a three-pointer and then took a tech. I'm not at all disparaging what Jimmy Butler did. He had a fantastic game, but he didn't have a great shooting night. It's not like he was getting what he wanted. It was just that he was drawing fouls, as he's prone to do, and letting it fly from three, which he usually doesn't do that often. So if the Raptors defend him the exact same way in game three, like it could easily be a 19-point game on 22 shots instead of 30, right? It's just yeah. kind of the way the whistle goes and whether he's letting it fly from deep. Another thing talking about Nick Nurse's rotations is in that game too, he once again felt like he needed to give Jody Meeks his designated 90 seconds of playing time. I don't know if that's in his contract or what, but a minute and a half left in the third quarter, the Raps had closed a sizable gap to two points and in comes a four bench player lineup including Jody Meeks who hadn't played all game I guess Nurse thinking that he can sort of buy his starters a little bit of time there but it's like you've got 90 seconds until you're getting a breather anyway what is really the point of that and you know what happens they end up losing those minutes by four points and then they end up down by three with their final real possession of the game and they have to get a three-pointer with you know they got a pretty good look but they wouldn't have been in that situation if they hadn't tried to get cute with that lineup. Yeah, you talk about like buying minutes too or buying some rest for your starters. Like this is the playoffs. This is the second round of the playoffs, an extremely important postseason run for you in the franchise. You're down. You're not up. You know, if they were up 10 or 12 points at that point, I'd be like, all right, whatever. You're getting them some rest and they're going to come in fresh in the fourth. You'll still be up like two, three possessions. They were down. They were losing in a very important game at home where if you lose, you give up home court advantage. Why are you trying to buy? Also, you've got two days off before the next game. Why are you trying to buy rest for your best players? Like, And if you're going to do that because you've got the horses on your bench that allow you to do that, fine. Jody Meeks is not one of those said horses. Right now, the Raptors have no horses on their bench the way their reserves are playing. So yeah. like, what are you doing? I, first of all, I'd rather see Patrick McCaw at this point than Jody Meeks. Second of all, Jody Meeks is really only there because of his shooting. Yeah. That he can get maybe get hot, hit a couple threes in that 90 seconds, whatever. So he gets a catch and shoot opportunity for three and bricks it. Comes down the other way, gives up an and one. Missed, comes, a, missed a box out on James Ennis. Misses the box out on James Ennis. Then the final offensive possession of the third quarter gets another, I think, kick out from Kawhi or Lowry. I can't remember who it was to get him another open three. He pump fakes, tries to drive, and turns it over. That's the kind of thing I, I know... NBA coaches can't be too reactive to like small sample sizes. But in a case like this, where the guy shouldn't have, like he didn't do anything to earn that playing time anyway, that should be the end of it. It's like, all right, I gave you one last chance. You did not make the most of it. You're not seeing the court the rest of the playoff run. 
I just think it's asking too much of a guy to come in cold off of the bench in a high leverage situation and be like, hey, go give us 90 good seconds. I don't really see the rationale behind it, and I, I think we will probably see that look mothballed going forward. The, I hope. the weird thing is is that so Nurse has been giving Meeks that standard 90 seconds at the end of every first quarter in the playoffs. And then in game two, he didn't do that because the Raptors were down. And I thought, okay, well, that makes sense. They're down. They're, you know, he doesn't want to like mess anything up. And then instead of doing it in the first quarter, he makes up for it by giving them the same 90 seconds in the third quarter. Like, what? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm really curious to see what happens in this game three because I think there are so many adjustments the Raptors could make to counter the Sixers adjustments. I think this series has a potential to be a really interesting chess match for all the reasons we talked about. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also encourage you to check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. And the Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone tackles, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, please download the Score app, which is available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. What's the next series you want to talk about? Uh, let's keep it in the East and talk Boston-Milwaukee. We okay. talked about a lot of adjustments. Let's go to a, a series where Mike Budenholzer and Giannis Antetokounmpo after Game 1 said, no need for adjustments. And you know what? I don't really think they made many adjustments in Game 2. I mean, maybe let's hear what you have to say about it, but... What I saw in game two was Giannis got to the free throw line a little more. He was a lot more aggressive on the catch and like he wasn't really taking time to survey the scene. He was mm-hmm. catching it and going. And I mean, I guess that's an adjustment in its own right, but it's not exactly a tactical one. I think they made a couple tactical adjustments. Um, and as I said in the, you know, a podcast episode that we recorded that will never see the light of day, unfortunately, a couple of days ago after game one, I wasn't actually concerned about their offense. I, I knew that it would be better because it just has been all season and I knew their guys would start to knock down shots. I knew Giannis would be better in transition, which he was. So I was never particularly concerned about that. I was concerned about their defense and them saying, you know, both Giannis and Bud, that they didn't feel like they needed to adjust, gave me a bit of pause because it seemed obvious that they did. Like that Celtics pick and pop with Kyrie and Al Horford was destroying them. And it still gave them problems in game two, but they started to switch a little bit more, something I said they needed to do. And another thing is, you know, a lot of those pick and pops, the the pick and roll ball handler would trail the ball handler into the paint as the screen defender dropped back. And if you froze a frame on a lot of those plays, you would see Al Horford or Marcus Morris whoever was popping wide open above the break while two guys sunk into the paint to corral the ball handler. And so what they started doing more of in game two was having the ball handling defender peel back after the drive and go out to contest that three-point shooter rather than bring that help up from the corner, which is something they were doing a lot. They were having that rotation come and oftentimes it was either, you know, it was coming late or if it came on time, it would just open up the pass to the corner for a corner three. And I think they did a much better job having the on-ball defender basically veer back and guard the shooter on the pop. I think I'm still a little bit worried because I, I do think that Brooke Lopez is still pretty vulnerable against Horford. I think downsizing and going with the Giannis Miritich front court is always going to be a pretty good option for them to combat that. I do think they still need to keep switching a little bit more. There was a play in game one when it was... 
George Hill and Chris Middleton were the two defenders guarding a Kyrie Irving, Gordon Hayward pick and roll. And they didn't even switch that. And Middleton didn't even play up. He dropped back and Kyrie walked into an open three-pointer. Like stuff like that just cannot happen. And I know their defensive identity all season has been founded on taking away the paint, taking away corner threes and giving up above the break threes and specifically giving them up to shooters that aren't qualified to really make them at a high rate. The Celtics are not that team. This is one of the best above-the-break three-point shooting teams in the league. They need to adjust to account for that. Yeah, and also the Bucks' stubbornness with the like not-switching thing. It's one thing if if it's a big and a small, right? And you're like, no, no, we don't do this. We don't switch. Like, you're talking about a possession where it's George Hill and Chris Middleton. And sure, Chris Middleton's a better defender. But, like, size-wise, you're not giving much up by switching that. Just switch. It's an emergency. Do it. Like, yeah. I, I don't understand this stubbornness to, like, nope, we're not a switching team. Even if you switch, like, there isn't much of a size disadvantage you're working with. And I think if the alternative is giving up an open three to guys who are really good above the break three-point shooters, I think you live with the mismatch 25 feet from the basket. And it's like, okay, make something happen against this mismatch. Yep. You're, you're giving them exactly what they want when you give up the open three. Their offense, I thought they were way better in transition as a team. Everybody getting out and running and getting to their spots and creating open threes. I thought... I mean, they started the second half with this Giannis uh, Lopez Miritich front court, which, if that unit can survive defensively, then it could really put a hurting on the Celtics at the offensive end. But I think that's pretty dicey. They had a 127 defensive rating in this game. I don't know how often they should be looking to go to that unit um, unless it's a Baines Horford front court for Boston. I, against a small Celtics lineup, I just think they're going to get burned for that because Miritich has to guard a wing and he had to guard Jalen Brown for a lot of possessions in that configuration and it didn't go particularly well. Yeah, and again, I, I think a lot of game two, not that it was all effort. I mean, some of it was just the Bucks made shots too. But and the Celtics didn't, which right. like they were ridiculous for mid-range exactly. in game one. But I still think a lot of it really was that the Bucks just did certain things like you mentioned, like recovering better. I don't know how much of that was like a tactical decision as opposed to like watching film and just being like, okay, here's how we treated this and let's just do it better as opposed to like, here are ways we can do it different, right? And that's where I still see this like weird Mike Budenholzer stubbornness where like, I don't know if they're actually going to do anything different and mm. that should be a concern for Bucks fans. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think they're remotely out of the woods yet. I still think they are the better team and right. I still have confidence in them winning this series, but there are definitely a lot of matchup things that, that give me some concern and it would be wonderful if they could get Brogdon back at something close to 100%. That would negate, you know, the need to play that that Lopez, Miritich, Giannis front court. The only reason I think they did that to start the first and third quarters was that they didn't want to have to play Pat Connaughton with the starters because he had a rough game one. I, I think Connaughton's pretty good, even though he did have a terrible game one. Like, I, I think that he can still be a useful player, but the option to just have Brogdon slide into that starting lineup instead is so valuable, and he just gives them another guy who's going to be able to knock down open threes off Giannis kickouts or also attack closeouts. He's one of the best straight-line drivers in the entire league. That would be huge if they could get him back. And it sounds like he's nearing a return. I don't know what condition he's going to come back in, but that has the potential to kind of swing this series, I yeah, think. Yeah, it does. Uh, you know who's become a like legit playoff performer? Chris Middleton. Oh, my God. Yeah, the so, last two postseasons. Yeah, he, his first couple postseasons, he really struggled. Between last year's seven-game series against the Celtics and now like a round and a half almost this year, his last 13 playoff games, he's averaging 22.5 points on 55% shooting and 58% from deep. Just lights out. Yeah. And even before, they went on that crazy run in the third quarter to blow open that game too. But before that, the Celtics had them on the ropes. And the only thing that was keeping them in the game was Middleton shot making. Yeah. And a lot of the time, it wasn't even good offensive process. Yeah. It was just 
off the dribble contested threes yeah. that Middleton was knocking down. It was he was monstrous. It was the kind of like playoff daggers that like the true elite stars in the league make right mm-hmm. that like you mentioned it, it has nothing to do with the process almost it's just I'm a better player than you I'm gonna knock this down in your face and I don't think a lot of people think of Chris Middleton as that kind of guy even though he is now an all-star but watch it man he is that guy and I think to that point I mean we talked about the Brogdon absence but the Celtics primary defender on Middleton usually is Marcus Smart and he hasn't been there either so you know if we're gonna talk about what the Bucks are losing without one of their guards uh, in, in action, then uh, I think we have to do the same for the Celtics. And Smart's oh, been a really enough. important part of what they do defensively all year. And I think they miss him too. Another thing I'm wondering is like, do you think that the Bucks should be running more pick and roll? Like that's not a big part of their offense. And I, part of the reason for that is they don't need to because if they just spread the floor around Giannis, they trust his ability to beat his man one-on-one. And then either he's going to get a dunk or he's going to force help and he's going to be able to kick out to an open shooter. They prefer to just have the floor spaced out for him rather than dragging an extra defender into the middle. But there are a lot of times when I see it's like Brook Lopez is posted up, is, is spotting up in the corner. And seeing how effective the Celtics have been with Horford picking and popping, I just wonder if the Bucks could maybe afford to do that a little bit more with Brooke. And I think presumably the Celtics would just switch, but then that's a pretty good way to get Horford off of Giannis. And if he's giving Giannis trouble, then, you know, whether it's Lopez who you're using as a screener or whether you're screening with a small to get him that mismatch, they did do that a couple times. And I thought Giannis was like weirdly tentative driving when Terry Rozier got switched onto him. But I just think that's something they should look to explore a little bit more if Giannis is getting bottled up in the half court. Yeah, I agree with that. I also think it's interesting, like the way you talk about it, and it just kind of um, illustrates how positionless the game is right now, especially in this series mm-hmm. where we're talking about the Bucks should run pick and roll to get their center off of the ball handler. You know what I mean? As yeah. opposed to get, running a pick and roll so that you get that mismatch. It's like in this series, it's like, well, the, the ball handler is a seven footer in Giannis, and the center is what the best equipped to guard him. So it's funny. What do you? Do you have a prediction for this series, like how you see it shaking out? We both said Bucks and six going in. I mean, I I might move to like Bucks and seven. I still think the Bucks win it. Mm-hmm. You know, I think they split in Boston. They probably split five and six, and then maybe Milwaukee finishes off at home in seven. But I still do have the Bucks winning it in six or seven. I guess. Yeah, I think I, I I I might go to Bucks and seven. I just think. But you're still with the Bucks. I'm still with the Bucks, but. Like I said, I, I have some concerns about them if they aren't willing to commit wholesale to the defensive adjustments that I think they need to make. Again, I do think they made some of those adjustments in game two. We'll see how it goes back in Boston. But I, at this point, I wouldn't be surprised if Boston takes this one. I just That game one was so jarring for me. Even though it was yep. like a 99th percentile shot-making game for Boston and like a first percentile shot-making game for the Bucks. I think, you know... There are matchup things that we talked about before the series that we maybe still understated a little bit. So even even if I give the Bucks the sort of talent edge overall, matchups are super important, and I think the Celtics are showing that. Yeah. So you had Rockets in six, and you moved off that. To I had Rockets in seven. Sorry. And you've moved off that to go Warriors now. Yeah. I had Warriors in seven. I think I'm going Warriors in five now. Okay. Um, we both had Raptors in six. Has I that, had oh, Raptors, no, you had Raptors in, five. in five. So has that changed? No, I'm sticking with it. Wow. Yeah. So you think they're just sweet, they're winning out from here on out. I just think their adjustments are so much simpler than the Sixers' adjustments. Like, after this, I don't know how much else the Sixers can really tweak to combat what the Raptors can do to them. And I think the Raptors have some easy fixes that are going to 
bear a lot of fruit going forward. So okay. I'm um, sticking with Raps in six there, but we're still both sticking with Raptors. And then we are both sticking with the Bucks, but assuming the Celtics push it a little further than we originally believed, yeah. which leaves only one series left. Yeah, uh, it's Blazers-Nuggets, and I was really excited about the series going in. I thought they were, they were two really fun teams that would match up in really interesting ways, and I think that's borne out through two games. Even though the game two was quite a slog <laughs> with with the Nuggets just unable to buy a bucket, but also the Blazers unable to buy a defensive rebound, uh, what have you seen through two games of that series? First of all, you talk about a slog. It was also inadvertently a bloodbath in the sense that Craig broke his nose and there was blood everywhere. And then Jamal Murray on the other side re-aggravates that leg injury that he suffered against the Spurs. Just like bodies hitting the floor and you got an S. Cantor playing through a separated shoulder. So it's become quite the like war of attrition this series. Totally. I had Nuggets in seven. I'm sticking with that. Nothing surprised me in terms of them splitting the first two games. I think the series will continue to go back and forth. In terms of tactics, the one thing I noticed from game one to game two, so in game one, I thought Jokic actually did a really good job of guarding Blazers pick and rolls. Even though Jokic isn't known as a defender, like I feel like considering how doughy and um, methodical his movements are, he's actually like not a bad... His defensive uh, limitations are vastly overstated, exactly. in my opinion. I think he moves well enough to guard pick and rolls. At least and his like, hands are incredible. Yeah, at least to an average level. But what I noticed the Blazers were doing, and I know a few people pointed this out on Twitter as well, is they probably saw that, and their adjustment for game two was that a lot of times they would set two screens. So they'd re-screen yeah. for Dame and CJ. Dame and they're setting their screens up really high, right. too. And so Jokic was in pretty good position after the first screen. Then they'd set a second screen. It's like, okay, now we're testing his mobility. And that's when you'd see him really kind of scrambling and not being able to recover. Right. There's a distinction there too, because in some cases they would set a double screen. And in some cases they would just rescreen. re-screen I think the right, one yeah. you're talking about is when Cantor flipped the screen right. and rescreen, right. and, and that got Lillard an open three, which right. I thought was a really interesting wrinkle. Um, but I, I think the Nuggets defense overall has been really impressive. Lillard and McCollum have both done a pretty good job, I think, splitting traps and, and beating them that way. But for the most part, the Nuggets have done a really good job of recovering and rotating. And I think their coverages of those pick and rolls have been pretty good. It's just in game one, Lillard was fantastic. And in game two, I thought McCollum was fantastic dealing with pretty much whatever pick and roll coverage got thrown his way. But I mean, to me, this series comes down to Jokic and... I still, as much as his numbers don't look nearly as good in game two as they were in game one, I don't know that the Blazers actually came up with a solution to the problems that he poses because they didn't really make any adjustments. Like they, they did, I think, focus on making him a passer more than they did in game one because he got, what, 39 points? So they were like, all right, let's make other guys beat us. It proved yeah. to be a winning strategy right. because the Nuggets couldn't do that. But man, were they just missing a ton of open threes. And I don't know long-term if that's going to be a viable strategy. Like, doubling Jokic is a really dangerous proposition. He's almost, like, at the LeBron level where if you send the double team at him, he is going to find the open shooter. He's going to know exactly where that help is coming from. And that pass is going to go right into the shooting pocket of whoever is open. And I, I think over the course of a series, that's going to come back to burn them. And I just think we're seeing how dangerous it is when you don't have a guy who's capable of really corralling him in single coverage. And I want to I give a lot of credit to Ennis Cantor. He's been outstanding. And, and especially, like you said, with that separated shoulder. First of all, at the offensive end, the, the craftiness with which he's able to get to that right hand... <laughs> Even though the Nuggets know that they have to take that hand away and that he basically can't go up with his left, he's got a, a really nice post game and he's been able to get to that right hand pretty much whenever he wants to anyway. 
And then defensively, I think they should they should let him guard Jokic a little bit more one-on-one in the post. I think he's done a pretty solid job of that. He had a couple really nice pokes in game two that, that produced turnovers. And post-defense, frankly, has never really been where he struggled. He still doesn't move his feet all that well, and that can create problems against someone who is as crafty as Jokic is. But when he's going to really get into trouble is when Jokic is handling the ball on the perimeter or when he's screening out like 25 feet from the rim and he has to defend in space. But if he's just defending in the post, I think they can afford to stay home a little bit more than they've been doing. Yeah. Having said that, though, you know, as you mentioned, this this is the series where Nurkic's absence really kind of looms large because it was one thing in the first round when Steven Adams was like clearly not right mm-hmm. and obviously even at his best Steven Adams isn't the kind of guy that's dominating inside but like not having a Nurkic in there and like a a big man who can truly not necessarily completely neutralize Jokic but at least like you know relatively slow him down and make him think about things right now it just looks so easy for him even you know even in game two which they lost to me Jokic still looked like the best player on the floor Mm -hmm. and I just don't think that would be as consistent if they had Nurkic in there yeah another thing that I thought they did more of in game two was they started blitzing the dribble handoffs a little bit more to just buy Cantor a little bit of time and that worked on a couple of occasions and a couple it didn't uh one of those occasions was that I think it was Gary Harris who was the the ball handler on the handoff managed to make that pass to Jokic and then Jokic, you know, Aminu had to come over to help, and Jokic threads that nutmeg pass through his legs to Millsap for the end one layup. Uh, another one, basically the exact same thing, but the help was late in coming over, so he hit a floater. And his floater game's been pretty instrumental. Same with Murray, actually. When they run that 1-5 or 5-1 pick and roll, either of those guys, when they're able to work their way into space against Cantor's deep drop back are able to to use those floaters to hurt him. So we saw, I think at the end of game two, the Blazers experimented with putting a menu on Jokic and they had Harkless on Murray so they could switch that action. I think that's dangerous too because you invite Jokic to just go into into the post against one of those guys. And now Harkless uh, is hurt too. He, he twisted his ankle and, and didn't come back in that game too. So I don't know what his status is going to be moving forward. They really need him. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they have a lot of different things they can try, but I don't know what the successful formula for them guarding Jokic is actually going to look like. And I don't think I saw it in game two. Right. And I think like tactically, I think Jokic is smart enough that he will be able to read situations, see how things are, uh, how the Blazers are adjusting to him and like make a, a decision on the fly and like a, make his own adjustments. Whereas again, like if it was just a Nurkic, if you're just matching strength for strength inside, it's a little different, right? It's smarts can't necessarily get you out of that. Whereas right now, I just feel like anything the Blazers can do to him and have done to him, he's just outsmarted them and and like wild his way out of it. Totally. And I think if Nurkic was there, they probably wouldn't have been giving up 25 offensive rebounds. They gave up 12. I wanted to talk about this. So the end of game two, the fourth quarter of game two in the series yeah. was the most preposterous 14 offensive rebounds. Performance I've ever seen on the glass in one quarter. 14 offensive rebounds in one quarter. The Nuggets essentially got multiple chances on every possession in the fourth quarter, or like a number of them, like a good percentage of them. It was unbelievable. The only thing more unbelievable than how many offensive rebounds the Blazers were giving up is how many of those possessions still ended up empty for the Nuggets. Like, they were getting two, three, four shot possessions and coming up empty. And I think all those offensive rebounds were partly the product of how many shots they missed, both from three-point range, which was producing a lot of long rebounds that the Blazers couldn't get to, and from close range, where there was just like a ton of tip-back opportunities off of, you know, close-range misses. Jokic's touch, I think, really abandoned him in that fourth quarter. And partly, I think, 
you know, the Blazers were sending a lot of help on drives, and that oftentimes just left the glass exposed on the weak side. And it was clear the Nuggets just had a mandate to crash every single time. And they came up with some really incredible rebounds. The Malik Beasley rebound over Cantor, who, who didn't fully box him out, but still had rebounding position on him. And Beasley just came out of nowhere to snag that rebound. Um, it, it was pretty impressive work they did on the glass. And it, it's unfortunate they couldn't convert those second chance opportunities into points. But I think that's got to be a focus for the Blazers in game three. Yeah, so when we did our... Uh our series prediction for this one. I actually had offensive rebounding as my series X factor because these teams were first and second uh, in offensive rebound during the season. But the reason I thought the Blazers might be the team to take advantage of that in this series is because the Blazers are a really good transition defense team, whereas the Nuggets have been terrible in transition defense. So I figured, all right, like maybe maybe the Nuggets played a little more conservative and just get back to make sure the transit... But what ended up happening in game two is they were down anyway. So I think they were more worried about just putting some points up. Yeah. And it led to just this disastrous quarter on the defensive glass for the Blazers. The other thing that doesn't help too is just Cantor not being right. Cantor's one of the best rebounders in the game. But, you know, as admirable as it is that he's playing through a separated shoulder, mentally it has to do something to you you know, before you jump up and crash yeah. in midair with a guy when you know one of your shoulders is not right. right. I think he should focus more on playing like the Brook Lopez role where you're not necessarily going for the rebound. Just you're just focused out. on boxing out as best you can and, and letting the other guys swoop in and grab the rebounds. Um, do you want to know what the Nuggets' offensive rebound rate was in that fourth quarter? How many of their own misses they rebounded? I'm going to say it was like 70%, man. 73%. Yeah, that's absurd. Yeah. <laughs> a good, just to put that in perspective for any listeners, like a good defensive rebounding rate is above 75%. If your offensive rebound rate's like above 25 or 26, that's good. And they were at what? 70 what? 73%. Unbelievable. Yeah, totally outrageous. Um, I, I also thought one of the things that actually saved the Blazers in that game too was Rodney Hood. Basically outplaying the entire He's had Nuggets two good games bench in this series. And the Nuggets bench has been a strength for them all season, and the Blazers bench has been a bit of a weakness. Rodney Hood was excellent. I mean, he hit a game breaking three to put the Blazers up ten with like two minutes left. He had a couple really big blocks coming over from the weak side when he crashed in on Jokic. Um he, like I don't know if he can keep this up, but having a reliable guy, and it's and it's not just about like him making shots, but there were a couple instances when the Blazers needed somebody to create something off of the bounce and hood was able to do that whether it was getting to the rim whether it was getting to a pull-up jumper uh his off the bounce creation has been big for them and and if they can get that throughout the rest of the series i'll feel pretty good about their chances yeah agreed um so let's you you said nuggets in seven and you said you're sticking with that prediction yeah i said blazers in six wow and i'm gonna stick with it as well uh just because i think they're a fantastic home team i expect lillard to be a lot better than he was in game two I really love the way McCollum's playing right now. And as much as all the, the concerns I talked about with how they're going to defend Jokic going forward are still valid, uh, Jamal Murray looked really hobbled at the end of, of that game too. And I don't know how that is going to affect him moving forward. I just, with with the Blazers having home court from here on out, I have a little bit more faith in them closing this out than I do the Nuggets. Yeah, I could see but that. I still think that's bold though. You've only got the Nuggets winning one more game in this series. And I'm assuming it's game five at home. Well, yeah, I mean, I think if, if that Blazers and Six prediction is going to come to fruition, they need to win both at home. And uh, I don't know. I guess I have to say I think they're going to do it. But we will see a lot, of, a lot of interesting stuff to look forward to um, in the coming games for all of these series. And we will be back next week to talk about all that. But for now, we're going to sign out. We are Pound the Rock. I'm Joe Wolfon for Joseph Kasharo. We'll talk to you all next week. 